0: dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, you could probably tell that I don't have my normal booming baritone. And that's because I've got a bug that won't leave me or the family alone. But, as we like to say in politics and in showbiz, the show must go on. I hope you enjoy it, I'll feel better, and I'll be back to my bright, sunny voice next time. And now, on with the show. (music) Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your stuffy host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Anand Giridharadas. Anand has spoken on stages around the world, taught narrative journalism at New York University, and is a regular on-air political analyst for MSNBC. He's a former foreign correspondent and columnist for The New York Times, and has written for numerous other outlets, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Time, and is the publisher of the newsletter, The Inc. His latest book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fights for Hearts, Minds and Democracy is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York. Anand, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I do want to talk about The Persuaders. I also want to talk about your previous book, Winners Take All, which I thought was fabulous. You know, the thing that I, I found interesting as a thread between the two books, and maybe this is oversimplifying, is the nature of something that we deal with as humanity, as society, as individuals every day, which is really power dynamics. And in Winners Take All, you do a really excellent job of explaining that, like, so much of the do-gooderism that comes out of elite America, what George Packer in his book called Smart America. People like me, frankly. White, suburban, educated two kids, you know, have some level of, you know, attainment, whatever that is, socially and economically. And we like our worlds the way they are. We know that the world should be better and that we could probably do something about that, but we'd have to give something up. And if you tell us there's a moral responsibility, right, if you add any level of friction to it, then it all sort of goes haywire with that particular cohort that they don't want to feel bad about themselves, that they want what they want and they want you to tell them that they're doing the right thing by being good people, by sitting on mountaintops and discussing high-level things. But the truth is, when the time comes, they want to go back to their apartment, they want to go back to their house, they're 2.2 kids and they're black Labradors and they want to feel good about themselves.
1: That's a really good way to put it, and I want to be clear, Winner's Take All is not, although you described it in a certain way, and I think at all levels of the system in this country, there are various forms of obligation and complicity, but Winner's Take All is not about lawyers making 250 grand. It's really about a very super, 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 super class that is doing what you just described in extremists. And so I want to be clear about that point. I, I think we live in an era in which the kind of elite social concern you see from that stratospheric class, the foundations dropping every couple of days, another big giving announcement, Bezos, Zuckerberg, Gates, these confabs like Davos, where these very rich people get together and it's like, how do we save African girls? What do we do about African girls? You know, African girls would just, I think, want those guys to stop going to Davos and talking about them, but never mind what they want these kinds of gestures, but also real programs, agendas, foundations of elite do-gooding are abundant all around us. And at the same time, you and I both read the data and we see that that same class of people at the very, 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 very top are actually increasing their concentration of wealth and power every year. So how do those two facts sit next to each other, right? How does the extraordinary elite hoarding in our time, which the data shows is real, how does that square with the extraordinary elite helping in our time, which is also real? And that was kind of the question that launched Winners Take All. And the answer, the conventional wisdom that was out there when I started the reporting was, yeah, we do have all these problems. Yeah, sure, there is a kind of elite hijacking of our politics and of our economy, but at least they're trying to do something good. At least they're building Zuckerberg General Hospital. At least Bezos is building free preschools. At least Starbucks is teaming up with Goldman Sachs to fight the racial wealth gap. At least, at least, at least. I kind of started my investigation trying to poke at this kind of at least theory. Should we be happy that at least these actors are doing these things? And what I found through the investigation was that in many ways, the extraordinary elite helping that we see is part of how these folks maintain the system of extraordinary elite hoarding. So that if Starbucks and Goldman Sachs team up to fight the racial wealth gap, quote unquote, it might distract us from the fact that Starbucks is breaking unions, which are actually how people fight a racial wealth gap. And Goldman Sachs helped cause the 2008 financial crisis, which wiped out more black wealth than anything in decades or that Mark Zuckerberg, when he helps by securing the 2020 election, quote unquote, with three or $400 million given to kind of protect the election, you remember that. But there's a hope that we might forget that Mark Zuckerberg is one of the people who made the 2020 election as insecure as it was in the first place by poisoning half this country's mind with QAnon fantasies and other things that ran rampant on his platform because he'd rather make a buck then rein it in. And so I became convinced that the extraordinary elite giving that we see all around us is essentially the wingman of the taking, right? The giving back is the wingman of the taking. The making a difference is the wingman of actually making a killing. The generosity is kind of the wingman of the injustice that this same class of people perpetrates. And look, since this is a Lincoln project, I should mention that although Donald Trump is in many ways his own phenomenon that is in some ways like not a biopsy of anything because he's just a particular phenomenon but in many ways he is emblematic of deep diseased trends in the american body politic and certainly one of them is this notion that the very people who broke our systems who rigged our politics who shattered our systems who thieved as a way of thriving themselves, that these people alone can fix it. That very notion of I alone can fix it, as Trump said, in some ways is the pretension of the plutocratic class in general, that breaking things is the qualification to leading the effort to fix them. It's a fraud. And I think it's a fraud that explains so much of what has gone wrong in this country.
0: So sort of putting the bank robbers in charge of protecting the bank.
1: Yes. Because you know what. They're bank experts, I guess.
0: Right. I just saw something the other day, a story. I think it was Bank of America. There was a woman she'd had. It wasn't a sizable amount of money, but she thought, oh, interest rates had gone up and, you know, maybe I should be earning a little bit more on my savings account. Nope. Bank of America hadn't reset the savings rates automatically. I don't know if it was for everyone, but the point was, is like they were going to continue to pay 0.1% on a savings rate. I mean, there was a reason why, in the old days, you gave the bank your money, they lent it to somebody else, their cut was the arbitrage between the two, and it made sense.
1: Yeah. How much do you want to bet that Bank of America has some lovely little program in that lady's community where one day a year, you know, all the employees wear matching t-shirts and they're given shovels and they dig something in that lady's community and they plant some tree for her, right? And this is how it works in the actual systems that determine what people's lives are like. Like, for example, what actual interest rate do you give people? You screw people. And then over here, in the kind of trivial but heavily marketed domains like Earth Day or Black History Month, you seize on these marketing opportunities to do giving so as to almost mask the actual way in which the system
0: functions. I mean, look, I before... The Lincoln Project, most political consultants, in the off years, they pick up some sort of PR campaign, some sort of public affairs campaign, working for companies, because that's what you do. You know, politics is a cyclical business. Maybe you join a firm and it sort of smooths itself out. But I've seen plenty of these things on and where, you know, in a given state, a big corporation needs to get something done. There's some big public policy thing, which to them is the biggest thing in the world, to you and me and anybody else is probably opaque. It will have a downstream effect on us. We just don't know what it is. And so whether or not it's the legislature or the regulator or the governor or the mayor or the city council, whatever it is, like, look, we all know the game. You're going to get what you want, but we got to help each other out here. So, you know, behemoth company, A, you got to put $25 million worth of community benefits back into, you know, Purple County, Right. And then this will get done because you're putting stuff back into the community. Okay. What does that company spend the next, every day of the next 10 years trying to do? Figure out how to get out of paying the $25 million, right? They fund these smaller organizations all over. I saw it in places. I lived in California for a long time. There are hundreds, if not thousands of small, mostly urban or, you know, maybe rural, but typically in poorer communities where these organizations taking the money from the big corporations who are again doing this whole community benefit song and dance and they're appreciative because it lets them do the work but like they also know that at any given moment like the spigot's going to turn off because the people up the line in the c-suite don't give a shit correct you know
1: when i wrote winners take all there was this pushback i mean how cynical could you be you look at these acts of kindness of feeding people and doing public health work in Africa or empowering 10,000 women as Goldman Sachs did with his famously named program, how cynical could you be? And then you would look closely and you realize that the companies themselves, in many cases, had put these programs under the marketing department. They just put it right there in the marketing department. And I think what's really interesting is that, as you know from the project's work on trying to shape narrative. A lot of how a country functions is because of what common sense narratives people passively believe. And the most powerful narratives are the ones that people don't even actually think about. Like the things you think about are contested, right? It's the things you don't even think about that you just take to be how the world is. Those are powerful, right? And I think one of them that Winners Take All really tried to take on was that the very people who might be responsible for the layoffs in your life, for the fact that you don't have the economic security for your family that you know your parents had a generation ago, the fact that housing is so expensive for you, whatever ailments are in your life, that the very people who you might hold accountable for that at the very top of American life, you shouldn't go too hard on them because they're also the saviors. I mean, I think what's amazing is if we all stopped believing in the inherent benevolence of very wealthy and powerful people, we'd have a quite different society quite quickly, right? They don't have tanks. They have a belief that is widespread in this country that I'm, I'm sure you have experienced this when you travel. In other countries, it's not the same thing. I mean, France has very rich people. They just don't set education policy. I remember once asking a German friend of mine, so like, do your billionaires in Germany, do they dictate the curriculum? And she started laughing. So she didn't answer my question. She started laughing so hard for her. It was hilarious that like someone who made money in a company in Germany would literally have any say over what anybody learns in a school. Whereas for us, it's so normal that if you're like a socially awkward man who invented an app in your twenties because you couldn't talk to girls in person and made a lot of money, you should decide. What diseases we cure first, what math education looks like for 13 year olds. Like, it's so bizarre. Just imagine for a second, Reed, if we did this the other way around. Like, if we were like, you're an amazing pilot, you've shown your excellence in piloting. You are now in charge of all baking operations in the United States. All decisions about baking are in your hand as a reward for your incredible success taking off and landing airplanes like it is so arbitrary to task the richest and most powerful people in the society with public education reform look at common core and bill gates with designing schools with trying to figure out how to rebuild the opportunity structure and yet we just continue as you said to
0: put the bank robbers in charge of bank security there's this sort of a flywheel that starts spinning is you become very wealthy Suddenly, as you become wealthy, you attract this gravitational field grows up around you because now people say, oh, there's money, fame, whatever the case might be. And now people are like, you got to have a foundation. Bob, Bob, got to have a foundation. And of course, with this financial bonanza, it becomes suddenly like, oh, nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong. Oh, I'm interested in that, right? Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting to me. Who's going to tell me no? I've got $11 billion. Of course I would know better. How would I not know better? I have $11 billion. And so it's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, which is no one is willing to tell the emperor he's got no clothes.
1: Correct. Think about someone like Elon Musk, and I'm sorry to make you have to think about Elon Musk. There's so many, you know, really bad things you could say about Elon Musk. Actually, the worst thing about Elon Musk is a pretty bland thing to say which is that he's just a highly limited man. The way Mark Zuckerberg's a quite limited man, Jeff Bezos seems to be quite a limited man, maybe good at some aspects of business, but quite limited. And the idea that these limited men become in charge of like human discourse on one of our major portals, or basically what most boomers know about politics, if you own Facebook, or like the experience of being a teenage girl and coming of age with a changing body through a hall of mirrors of likes and shares. And Mark Zuckerberg is the chief curator of what it's like to be
0: a teenage girl now around the world. I mean, not only that, his people tested the algorithm and they knew it was bad for teenage girls and they did it anyway. But here's the other part is you mentioned the financial crisis. There's never any consequence, right? I just saw this thing, TD Bank, was in the middle of some money laundering deal. They've got to pay a $1.2 billion fine. All right. It's a bad day for somebody in the accounting department. But, you know, they recognize no liability or responsibility for anything that happened. Like somewhere in that damn building, somebody knew something was going wrong and they did it anyway. You know why? Because it was $7 billion was flowing through the place and no one was going to be the guy or gal who said, look, it just didn't seem right to me.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, TD Bank. No, i <laughs> right. You know, look, I actually would broaden the point to say, one thing I often think about is like, 50 years from now, what are people going to remember this as the age of, right? And this is, we've definitely lived through like the age of a lot of things. There's, there's a lot of candidates. It certainly could be the age of the pandemic, the age of right-wing authoritarian extremism, so on and so forth. But I think it's also, and this is perhaps a cause even of some of the other things, it's an age of impunity. It's an age when people who did really bad things to us all basically got away with it as the default. Think about whether it's wars we shouldn't have been in, whether it's financial crises we shouldn't have had, whether it's malfeasance for disaster relief, whether it's mismanagement of COVID and spreading disinformation. The people who have most injured the common good are not only not in trouble. In many ways, they have ascended into ever higher positions of authority and are still doing it. It takes failing upward to a whole different level. You know, and and you look at these glacial investigations of Donald Trump and all these different, let's be honest, I would love to have this following clip used against me and proven wrong. I'm just going to say it here. None of these people are actually coming for Trump. None of them. None of these people are going to do a thing against this guy. It has been what now? we're into the eighth year. This guy's whole existence is unlawful. And there's not one prosecutor in this country with, I don't know, some combination of spine and diligence and bravery and incorruptibility to just apply to him some of the scrutiny that everyone who smoked marijuana in the 80s and 90s and went to prison for long periods of time somehow was unable to avoid. So, impunity, impunity, impunity. And I think I look at impunity behind the Trumpism phenomenon and why now you have copycats because no one's the lesson no one is taking from it is that it's too dangerous to go down that road. I look at impunity as a source of the kind of populist rage, both on the left and the right, that has pushed polarization further. The American people, I think, are correct to intuit that. If you do really bad things to the country on an epic scale, you will only thrive. If you swindle like 20 people, this is not an age of impunity. Like you're definitely going to jail if you swindle 20 people. But if you swindle like 20,000 or 20 million, I'll probably be sitting next to you on cable TV one day, or you'll just be like in the Senate or something, you know?
0: Well, but also the acceptance by which, to your point about the TV studio, That you can be brought back into the fold and everybody goes, well, look, this business, whatever it is, media, finance, politics, Hollywood, whatever, it's all a circle. You're up one day, you're down the next. Was it that bad? Was it that bad?
1: My favorite example of this, because it was really laid out in forensic detail by a New York Times investigation. So you remember with Jeffrey Epstein, there was first the Florida investigation of Florida cases and he made some kind of deal but he was like a convicted pedophile the facts were known it was documented and it was bad at some point he moved to new york after this but well long before he was actually arrested in new york and the new york times detailed his effort to re-enter high society at that point after the florida case moving to new york and basically it was really hard at first Being a convicted pedophile is like apparently kind of a buzzkill in New York high society. Who knew New York high society had standards? He couldn't quite break his way in. And then he started his giving, particularly MIT and Harvard. At Harvard, they named something called the Ped Center after him, which seems remarkable. The Program on Evolutionary Dynamics or Ped Center. These people are always trying to tell on them. So they're always hoping to get caught, right? And he's hanging out with Steven Pinker and Larry Summers and
0: Right, the same guys that are going to be in Davos next week.
1: Correct. They start actually starts flying them places and lo and behold, he's suddenly the toast of the town in New York City. Right? What happens in Cambridge spreads back to New York. People are coming over to his house, Bill Gates is coming to meet him, and it works. And like clockwork, a pedophile pariah through some strategic giving was able to fully reestablish himself. With some of the biggest names on earth, some of the people who have entire teams of people to manage their reputation, even those people could not keep them away from him. I mean, it's an extreme story, the Epstein story. But I think it's an example of how if you are smart about creating the appearance of trying to do good for the world, there is nothing, there's no barrier to reestablishing yourself in the American power elite.
0: I wonder, too, if there's something about the whole idea that I've I've been sort of noodling on here and on of big, that Americans generally have been pretty anti-big. I mean, in 1775, we didn't like people telling us we had to pay our taxes, so um, we got rid of them. But there was always a rugged individualism that for a long time, you know, I'd like to think it continues with a basis in community. But. Now we've had these massing of power in so few places, and not only in so few places, in the hands of literally so few people that are poorly written Bond villains. Like, they're not even interesting for the most part. How does that affect, in your mind, not only like the inequality gap, which is obviously a, just a maw that grows every day, but how does a society where... Americans have very little trust in any institutions. Like, How does that function coherently except by inertia?
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on something that's actually incredibly important that I think about a lot, which is that I think we need to, in some ways, slightly alter the political fault line in American life. If you think about left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, the fault line for much of the last generation was government versus business, right? You want government activism versus a free market. And I think that was the kind of post Reagan, neoliberal era frame. I don't think that's the relevant divide. I think that divide you laid out is actually the divide today, which is big and connected versus regular people, you know, on the outside of that power. So, you know, the government versus business division is kind of doesn't ring true because if you're Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase, it's not quite a story of like you are in the private sector and then the government's on the other side. Like you're constantly sending people to go work at the treasury department from your company. You have huge influence in Washington through your corporate you know, donations and whatever. I would think about it more as Jamie Dimon and you know, a certain amount of power that someone like him has created on the political side In some ways, on the same side of the ledger as against people who just, you know, have $800 in a Chase Bank account, right? That's the real divide in American life. And I think it's really essential for what I would call the pro-democracy movement, which is the movement that is not Trumpism and the movement that is for free elections and for reality and for, you know, democracy and things like that. These outrageously radical ideas. Yeah, crazy. I think it's really important for the pro-democracy movement to not just center on anti-Trumpism, but to take up the mantle of being for the material improvement in regular people's lives and against the collusion of big, powerful institutions against regular people. I think it's resonant. I think that message of kind of crony capitalism actually gets you inroads into the right, into regular people on the right in a way that's actually quite powerful. And when you see things like, you know, Donald Trump making his idiotic visit to East Palestine, I don't think it was particularly effective. But you see what happens when folks on the neo-fascist right feel like a window for them to falsely claim the mantle of being on the side of regular people. And you don't necessarily see in a moment like that, Democrats and others just like leading evocatively and emotionally on an issue like that, whether or not one needs to go there, which is a separate kind of logistical issue. um, You just don't have that kind of claiming of the ground. And that's the kind of thing that I think becomes very dangerous when you create openings
0: for the faux populists to claim that territory. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up East Palestine because I was with a friend of mine last weekend and he's a very smart guy, very successful attorney in California. He's a Republican. He's not a Trumper. He's not a Trump fan, but he is steeped in Fox News talking points. And he said, so do you think it took Buttigieg long enough to get there? And I said, I don't think that really matters. I think what really matters is the two idiots from Norfolk Southern said, you know what we should do? We should light all this shit on fire. That's what we should do. That's the question we should be asking. And I said, I got to be honest with you, buddy. It's stuff like that. Where like they're like, we made a mess. We got to clean it up. The best and fastest way we can do it is to burn it. I don't care what else goes around. And then subsequent to that, you hear that they're going door to door, giving people $1,000 checks and asking them to sign a piece of paper. It turns out it's a release of liability. And I said, you know what, bud? You're a lawyer. I'll tell you what. That makes my inner revolutionary want to come out. And you know what he said? Mine too. I was pretty surprised by that.
1: Again, I want to separate, and you, you actually worked in these arenas, so you know this better than me. The question of like visits in a case like that is a, in some ways, a technical question, right? Like it is possible to visit in ways that actually make situations worse and, you know, whatever. But I do think rhetorically, there was a lot more opportunity to claim leadership on this issue. And, you know, frankly, Joe Biden, to his great credit, he wasn't a particularly progressive senator from Delaware. But I think in terms of some of these issues of going after big wealth and, recognizing that the American dream should be something that actually exists in America, not just in other countries. He's gone after, he said we should tax billionaires more. He's proposed, you know, various forms of environmental rules and other things. I think a moment like the East Palestine thing is the kind of moment the right is very good at exploiting and the left is
0: often very bad at exploiting. And I, I say exploit, you
1: can exploit things for good too,
0: right? You can, but it's still exploitation And Democrats and the left get super uncomfortable about it.
1: Yeah. But like to me, let's call it exploiting, although I don't actually think it's exploiting, like exploiting East Palestine to make a point about regulation and the environment and corporate greed. If that's exploitation, like deal me in, because that is actually using what happens in a country to teach people. I'll tell you this as a writer, right? If you just drop a book, and I've done this, like you drop a book that is about things that people are not currently talking about. Like you can do that. I've done that. Some of my books, I would, say, I wrote a book about the transformation of modern India and publish it in America. Like no one was like, we're desperate to know about, you know, so you, it's fine. People will still find your book. They read it if you make it engaging, but it's a lot easier if you take a moment where everybody's like, why is this happening? That's a void. In the new book, the persuaders, I write about these kind of, Persuasion windows where those moments when like an entire country has questions about something, that is political gold, right? When everybody is like, why is this happening? Right. Chris Hayes has a podcast called Why is This Happening. I think it's in some ways the great question of this bewildering age. Why is this happening? That is the question on a million lips. And an East Palestine kind of moment is a why is this happening moment. And I think a lot of Democrats are shy or feel there's something kind of icky about stepping into a why is this happening moment and flooding it with meaning-making and explanation and frankly, generative, accurate scapegoating where that needs to happen. And I think that kind of moral queasiness really is an obstacle to defeating, defeating the far right.
0: Oh, for sure. Listen, I grew up, as the listeners know, in the Republican Party, different Republican Party in the 80s and 90s. And- you know, worked on million campaigns, and now I work, or I talk to a lot more Democratic consultant types or political types than I ever did. And I remember, I think after the 2020 campaign, I'm like, I can't believe we ever lost to y'all. Like, I can't believe we ever lost. Because when you're a young Republican operative, it's the Al Davis rule. Just win, baby. Voters aren't going to remember the campaign. For the Arkansas 3 congressional race, they're not going to remember. For the Senate race in Ohio, they're not going to Remember? And before you know it, you know, you're off and running. But Democrats just, they want to win, and they want to win the right way, and I appreciate that. But it also takes the sort of reality of the situation out, which is there will be friction in this process. Any change, any change will require friction. And that, to me, on the pro-democracy side on it, is what concerns me is when the time comes, will people be willing to stand up and make the change? You mentioned your book, The Persuaders. There are a lot of folks in here that are way, way, way to the progressive scale compared to me. But I found it interesting to see some of them who are like, I'm a progressive activist. But if I only talk in the idiom of the progressive activist, I'm never going to get anybody else other than the true believers to come along with me. And I thought that was a fascinating takeaway from some of the stories in your book.
1: I often think about in choosing subjects, characters from my books, I think about who is the most credible or powerful messenger for a particular message. And so some of the people that I write about, Alicia Garza, Linda Sarsour, Loretta Ross, these are some of the most radical, morally committed, deeply progressive, to the left of progressive folks working in American life. And what in my book they are all saying, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them for saying it in my book, because in some cases they're saying things in my book that maybe they were saying more in private before that, they're airing something, right? I think it was a book that feels like people are airing something that needs to be more in public than it maybe was. And what they are airing, these really deeply committed activists on the left, is the notion that if we are going to beat the dangers of Trumpism, it is going to be through building a relentlessly expansionary movement, a small e evangelical movement, a movement that is obsessed. About how many more people joined overnight, every night, night after night, from here till eternity. And what I think a lot of the subjects of my book say in the book and through the reporting I did is that that's not the pro democracy movement we have right now. And it's not for a whole bunch of reasons. There's a lot of things that come in between the pro democracy movement and that kind of expansionary approach. I think a big part of it is the kind of purity culture that's thrived in an age of social media. I think a lot of it is the very positive phenomenon of marginalized voices, women, people of color, black people finding more voice in recent decades and not being willing to put up with a lot of shit that they would have put up with silently 50 years ago. And that's a good thing that people are not willing to, right? But it can also make for a prickliness in movements that need to be pulling more people in instead of saying, you know, should we let you in or not? I think that the central challenge that I tried to look at in the Persuaders is how can the pro democracy movement deeply stand for something, stand for ideas of democracy and inclusion and multiracial society? So, how can you stand for those things and reach out? And I think one of my, perhaps just to make it personal for a second, I mean, I started my career in journalism as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, starting in India, where I had not grown up, but my parents, lived there. They moved to America. I was born in America. and then I moved to India after college and I became a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, my dream job. And I think something that came to define my journalism grew out of that time and place, which is that I was based in Mumbai. Mumbai is not the capital. I didn't have to write about wars and interest rates and all this you know, boring news. I and mean, it's just, It's not the kind of stuff I'm interested in. So I wrote about people and I wrote about the story of kind of transformation of modern India, the big boom that was happening in the 2000s, I wrote about it as a story of mentalities and psychologies and people's self-images changing, right? And you who have worked so deeply in pol- you know that the stuff of political change is this really deep stuff where people are asking, am I safe? Am my kids are going to be okay. Am I still a man? Like these deep, deep things. If that shit is not going well, nothing else goes well for people right my methodology in journalism became this close look at how these big forces of change how they refract into people's lives and emotions and psychology and sense of who they are i came back to this country and started reporting on america in around 2009 2010 and i realized that what was happening here was decades and decades of pretty dramatic social change right changes in gender the LGBT rights revolution, changes in race and demographics and the rise and ascendancy and voice of marginalized groups, the rise of China, enormous phenomenon in all of our lives, the rise of technology has changed all of our lives. And so a lot of Americans are really emotionally psychologically adrift or kind of between worlds because of those changes. And that's normal. It is totally normal as we make racial progress in this country, for a lot of white people to be like, hey, why am I suddenly having to go to these trainings at work? You're not a bad person if you wonder why you suddenly have to go to all these trainings or why your parents didn't even know the word whiteness, but now whiteness is something you need to understand and think about. You're not a bad person for having some discomfort around that. You're not a bad person for living in a small town in Arizona and suddenly wondering why you can't communicate with the cashiers at Walgreens because They seem to now speak Spanish more than English and you feel a little disordered. Like those kinds of primary experiences that people have in a changing society do not make them bad people. What they do is they create questions. They create that kind of why is this happening void.
0: But who is there now to fill that
1: void? Exactly. The far right understands the truth of everything I just said. The far right recognizes this era of precipitous change as what it is. It recognizes that there's a whole bunch of people who are kind of morally adrift between conceptions of themselves racially, uh, in terms of gender, and inter- all kinds of things. And it gets into the void quickly. And the left and the pro-democracy side at large is still, I think, stuck in a paradigm of facts and reason and policy and serious... Wonkiness. I think it's a real asymmetry
0: that keeps me up at night. It absolutely is. Look, Rick Wilson and I wrote an op ed I think is going to be running here soon. It's in the context of politics, but we call it, you got to get out of 2015 thinking. You just rattled off all of the other things about American life and global life, even maybe, that have changed. But American life has changed as dramatically as it possibly could without the fall of the Republic. And everybody thinks, ah, Ron DeSantis will be the savior of the Republican Party. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Right? What does it tell you that the Republicans in charge in Washington, D.C. and state capitals and the donors were upset with Trump? Not because he's a bore, because he tried to overthrow the government, because he was impeached twice, because he killed 800,000 Americans or any of those things, but because the choices of his primary candidates cost them seats, which equal power. That's what they were upset with them about. That's their red line. And that's the thing that we try and explain to people. is like, you think that the Republicans in the U.S. House won't take the debt ceiling on a Thelma and Louise trip? They absolutely will. You know why? Because they don't care. I mean, I probably spend too much time in this cesspool. But you have to take off the glasses you wore for most of your life and put the new ones on with the right prescription. And it might give you a headache for a little while. But it's better to have that than be blind to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I, I think sometimes what I see is a lack of understanding of most people's lived experience of politics. I don't think regular people are sitting around thinking, climate change, what are we going to do about that? Or this, what are you... We... People start with their lives and people have all these things happen to them and they're like trying to sort it all out. And except for a very small number of super highly informed politics super fans, most people are trying to square what they're hearing over there in the political arena with like what they're seeing at the grocery store, what's happening in their lives. And I think when you're offering people, as Democrats often do, you're offering them these kind of stories of crisis, our democracy is in danger, the planet is in peril. They, You know these kind of Hollywood stentorian voices of danger, you're failing to do a couple of things. You're failing to, first of all, start with what they're feeling. You're starting with what you wanna do instead of starting with what they're feeling, the anxieties of this kind of age of change and transition. But second of all, you're failing often to describe to them what the world looks like after you win. You're not as Anat Schenker Osorio, who I write about in the book. She calls it paint the beautiful tomorrow. I've listened to so many Democrats talk about Medicare for all. For example, I am not sure I have ever seen anyone make a video, which would cost like five grand to make of what it would actually be like to go to the doctor if we had Medicare for all. I think that'd be a pretty powerful visualization for Americans who are used to going to the doctor. And, you know, when you go to the doctor, even if you have insurance, it's like, you know, before you step forward, sir, do you have insurance? Can I have your insurance card? You cannot go past that door. Right. It's like the first thing is like, whoa, do you have money? I don't know if you've ever been to Europe and gotten sick and gone. That's not how they greet you at doctor's offices in Europe. They ask what you have. They ask what's going on with your body. It'd be nice for Americans
0: to see that. How come we don't show people? I'll tell you why, because they're sitting in a meeting, they're discussing a policy like Medicare for all, but it could be anything. And someone, the probably lone creative, truly creative person at the table, who is often ignored, but shows up anyway, makes the pitch like you just did. And they said, okay, but what state is it in? What's the gender, ethnicity, age of the person? What do they have? So everything gets bogged down in the details that lose everything else. Because now you're not telling a story. You're basically writing the manual for your car, which is useful. (laughs) But not particularly
1: interesting. I feel like I've seen the ads that result from the process you described.
0: Oh, well, they're everywhere. You'll see a gajillion of them in the next 18 months. Yeah. So listen, as we close here, what in particular are you looking at in this sort of American political space? Yes. But in the broader spaces that you're talking about, again, this idea of big, these voices who are are rallying people, I think that the Gen Z turnout last year was great. I think in a lot of ways electorally they saved our bacon, but we cannot take them for granted. They are not Democrats. I mean, maybe they are, but a lot of them are probably registered as independents. They don't like either party. So what are you looking at?
1: First of all, and I think this relates a lot to the Lincoln Project. I think there is a urgent need for the pro-democracy movement to claim deeply American values and like strum certain deeply American chords. And not allow themselves to be defined as extreme. And I think two words that come to mind in particular are freedom and patriotism. It infuriates me that we allow a party whose political project is to turn everyone in Texas into a Stasi officer informing on women who want to control their own body, that that is the party of freedom, that it has been allowed to claim the mantle of freedom or that people who kind of shoot beer bottles in their backyard to cosplay for some kind of Civil War fantasy, that those people get to claim patriotism. And broadly speaking, the Democratic Party, a large part of the progressive left, is averse to claiming the mantle of freedom and the mantle of patriotism. And I would say this moment, 2023, is as ripe a moment as we have ever seen to claim that stuff, right? Because frankly, like your former Republican Party, that had an economic freedom agenda, whatever. So, that's all gone. It has never been easier for the Democratic Party to own freedom. Like, people on the far right don't even fly the American flag anymore. They fly the police flag or the Trump flag or the Confederate flag. Right. Like, the left should be owning the flag. Like, we are the people of the flag, and they're the party of like police officers who shoot people. So this is a moment where I think if you are on the pro-democracy side, you need to be moving, not moving to the center in terms of policy, but moving to claim those deep cords of freedom and patriotism. And the second thing I would say is, and it relates to the patriotism point, it's really essential, I think, for the pro-democracy side to tell the better story about America, tell a great story about America right now. It's not just A hodgepodge of programs. It's not just we're going to do Build Back Better and and this and that, but to explain in an evocative, empathetic, emotionally resonant way. Why are we here? Where are we trying to go? The way I would frame it quite simply is that this is a country founded with some extraordinary ideals, extraordinary ideals, like mind shattering ideals for that time and place. And over time, we have gotten better in every generation at becoming true to those words, becoming true to those ideals, becoming true to those founding values. And we have come actually remarkably close to fulfilling that vision in our time, right? Look at this society. It's so easy to be down on America right now. I am not down on America. I travel all around the world. What we are trying to do is quite unique in this moment and in all of history to build a country forged of the world, a country made of all the other countries. That's what America is doing right now. And actually, we're quite far along that journey. And it's an awesome project. It's an awesome undertaking. We are building a country, I think, worth creating. And these neo-fascists, I think, need to be properly put in their place in our own imagination. They are not the protagonists of the future. They're not the main characters of the American drama right now. They are barnacles on our progress. They exist only because of this progress. There's no backlash without progress, right? The desire for democracy and human rights and justice, that desire would exist without the backlash. But the backlash wouldn't exist without the progress. They are a barnacle on our achievement, our progress towards being a multiracial Democracy with liberty and justice for all. So we got to remember that they're over there barnacling. And we are over here trying to build a new kind of country, a kind of country that is a worthy pursuit. And I think we have to go to the American people in every election and offer that thrilling picture of becoming that brave country, brave enough to be what it was founded to be, and invite people into it, be clear about the values that that pro-democracy movement holds, but also be merciful about people who don't entirely get it yet, who don't know what pronouns are, but don't hate trans people, who find white supremacy a kind of confusing or off-putting term, but, you know, are on some stage of some journey to understanding more what they need to understand to live in a country where people can actually share. You know, I think we need to claim the notion, frankly, of America at this point, and not concede the idea of the country, the ideals of the country, the notion of freedom, the notion of patriotism to insurrectionists and
0: scoundrels and fools. Right. Scoundrel, a great word. I don't have anything else that I can add that's going to be better than the four minutes you just gave us. So I'm going to ask Anand, where our folks can find you online and where they can find your books?
1: Well, I have a newsletter, which is called The Inc. And the website is inc. T-H-E dot I-N-K. It's a good place to keep up with my work and interviews that I do with other people who I think are, you know, thinking thoughts that are worth encountering. And The Persuaders book is the most recent one. We also talked about my third book, Winners Take All. Those can be found, you know, wherever you find books. And in fact, for folks who listen to your your podcast, there's a website we created called thepersuadersbook.com, where we actually have a free guide people can download and figure out how to do this in their own lives, right? How to persuade better in our own lives. Because we all have the climate denier uncle, the QAnon cousin, right? This phenomenon of division and, and kind of untethering from reality is universal in America today. And so one of the things I tried to do with the Persuaders book is to try to you know, help people also in the more practical ways that this is showing up in people's lives so if you go to the com, some of those resources are, are there waiting
0: for you and any social media accounts our folks should be watching for
1: oh yeah I mean I'm trying to quit but you know you're getting me back on Reed I'm on Twitter most actively for my sins at Anandrites, AnandWrites A-N-A-N-D W-R-I-T-E-S
0: and as always gang you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore L-P Anand Thank you so much for joining me today, and everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Ree Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.